salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Welcome to another episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host, as so often is the case, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Hello, everyone. And David, you've had some really tough coastal storms out there in California in the last couple of weeks. What's going on? Yeah, no, it's been crazy between El Nino and sea level rise and more torrential rains linked to climate change. We've had like a thousand year flood down where where Charlie is in San Diego, mudslides in L.A., houses hanging off cliffs all up and down the coast, uh, <sighs> flooded roads and highways. And it's only going to get worse over time. So a good topic for an upcoming show, as well as an existential threat to humans and all other living creatures. Speaking of critters, today we're thrilled to be talking with Shelby Van Pelt, author of the best-selling novel, Remarkably Bright Creatures, the story of the growing, healing friendship between a widowed aquarium cleaner and a giant Pacific octopus, giant Pacific octopus with an attitude named Marcellus. We've both read and really like your book, uh, Shelby. Uh, us and a million and a half other folks to date. But before we get into the evolution of your work uh, that's set in the Pacific Northwest, let's talk about your own first connection to the ocean that I understand is also set in the Pacific Northwest. Yes, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, um, which, you know, as so many of the towns in Western Washington are, it's a place that you really just can't escape the water. Um, you you either smelling the sea or you're on the sea or you're seeing the sea um, from, you know, from most areas in my town. Um, I didn't live in a neighborhood that was on the water. We were kind of off a little bit inland. We weren't quite that hoity-toity when I was growing up. But, um, you know, I remember in high school, every day I'd go for a run and I would run five, 10 miles along the water and just kind of steep, uh, steep in in that ocean smells and, and sounds and atmosphere. It's very much a part of who I am. You know, as a kid, I feel like my connection to sea life really did come through an aquarium, uh, which is sort of fitting for uh, the way that remarkably bright creatures evolved. Of course, it's the story of an octopus who is in captivity somewhat against his wishes. Um, the Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium in Tacoma, Washington, was one of my absolute favorite places to hang out as a kid. And they had this building. The building is is still there, but it has been replaced by a fancier aquarium. Uh, but the aquarium when I was growing up was this round cement building. Uh, it was all uh, creatures from the Pacific Northwest that were from there. It was dark. It was smelly. Uh, the walls were damp. Like you were never right sure why the walls were damp. It's like, why is everything so wet in here? Why does it smell like feet? Um, I think my parents probably didn't like hanging out in there as much as I wanted to hang out in there. But for me, it was just a very special place. So different from, you know, the other exhibits, you know, the lions and tigers and things that were more out in the open. The, uh, the this, this aquarium in particular just felt very intimate to me. It kind of felt like being let in on a secret to be in there with these creatures from the deep that I would have no way of, of knowing otherwise. And did you have some favorites? I mean, the octopus was always my favorite. I've always loved jellyfish. I mean, jellyfish are artwork, truly. Um, you know, wherever, wherever you believe the source of, of the beauty in our world comes from, you've got to believe that that, that somehow became artwork, uh, to, you know, to have jellyfish that look like that. My gosh, there was 
like the aquarium in the book, the the book takes place in a fictional town called Seoul Bay, uh, which I just made up. Uh, But the aquarium, the Seoul Bay Aquarium, is very much based on this aquarium from my childhood. And the Point Defiance Aquarium, like the Seoul Bay Aquarium, has this big tank in the middle where um, a bunch of different sea life uh, live together and coexist. And I always thought that was pretty fascinating, too. Um, uh, Always made me a little bit sad, honestly. Just the repetition of those creatures, how they would sort of circle this tank in the same direction. And you could almost set your watch to certain individuals, um, you know, how often they would come around. Um, and, And really, that is sort of what led me to explore some of the themes in the book, themes of sort of being stuck and being in a rut. Um, you know, on a human level, how we get out of being in those ruts. Right. But after childhood, you weren't driven to a career in oceanography or thinking of being a professional writer. What what was sort of the course of your life after well, that smelly aquarium? <laughs> no, you know, when I was very little, I wanted to be a marine biologist. But I think a lot of little girls in particular in the 80s wanted to be marine biologists. And that wasn't a dream that I pursued very far. I went into a very different field. I studied philosophy and economics in college. And after college, like like a lot of people, I had uh, quite a lot of student debt. And so I took an office job doing this kind of consulting job that was okay, but was not something that really fed my interests or or fed my soul. But sometimes we do what we have to do to, to get the student loans paid. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s, really, that I came back to writing. I had a little bit of a break in my career and uh, decided to try writing fiction, which wasn't something I had ever done before, um, you know, since I was very, very little. And, uh, you know, the inspiration for Marcellus actually came from going down a YouTube rabbit hole about naughty octopuses. (laughs) Uh, So I really came to both writing, you know, and to get to learn more about octopuses and other marine life, sort of through this very like couch potato angle, almost, you know, very informally, I guess it is to say, which is interesting to me because I feel like that's how a lot of my readers are coming to it too. I talked to so many people who didn't know anything about octopuses before they read this book and have been, you know, inspired to learn more and, you know, hopefully inspired to to care more. This book is so interesting in that you create the story based on this unconventional protagonist, an octopus. And uh, you went down this rabbit hole to learn about octopuses. And I just wanted to, you know, how you were a mother with a young child when you started writing this book. So how did you combine motherhood with this narrative and this octopus as you were going through your creative processes. It's almost like you need eight limbs just to keep control of everything. <laughs> you know, I I love that meme. My favorite thing about that meme is how true it rings <laughs> when you think about an octopus and how their brains are laid out, how they're so very different from us. And they truly, you know, if you could put an octopus in a kitchen, I think they truly could, you know, stir the pot and uncork the wine and peel the onion and do all of those multitasking things because they have like a brain almost in each of their arms, you know? So I I very much wish I was laid out like that sometimes. (laughs) It's getting a little bit easier now that my kids are older, but. (laughs) So Marcellus wasn't fully formed when you started writing the book. I mean, he was like a voice, a point of view you developed over time. You didn't plan to write a book when you first wrote. I did Uh, not. I was just exploring 
sort of my my fiction writing at that point. I was writing a lot more short stories. I took um, a continuing education uh, creative writing class, you know, which is the sort of thing that's open to anyone. You know, it's not a credit program or anything like that. Uh, it's mostly just, you know, adults, you know, a lot of older adults who are sort of uh, looking to uh, get better at their hobby of writing. And so it was in that class, we got a writing exercise about point of view and using an unusual point of view. And that was sort of where the voice of Marcellus came from. Uh, and I think I might've been a cranky old man or a cranky old octopus in a prior life because that voice came really, really easily to me. <laughs> um, just the, you know, the curmudgeonliness, uh, the boredom really. And I feel like that rings true with so much of what I've learned about octopuses, particularly in reading, you know, Simon Montgomery's work and the work of other people who have worked with octopuses in captivity is just how very much effort they have to put in to keep those octopuses from, you know, from being very bored and unhappy. Very bored, yeah. And and how did you get, how did you come up with the name Marcellus? So at one point I wanted to name him Marcus Aurelius after the Stoic philosopher. I thought that was an awesome name for an octopus and how better... Uh, how much more fitting could it be for this animal in captivity that is nearing the end of its life and sort of contemplating the end of its life on a daily basis? Um, I was working with a critique partner and we kind of workshopped that and she kind of thought it was like too much of a mouthful. It just made the book sound more serious than it was. Um, and so we mashed the words up, Marcus Aurelius into Marcellus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it, I can't imagine him being named anything else. <laughs> oh, it works. Definitely. So, you know, obviously, when you're writing about cephalopods, you have to learn a lot about octopuses. So what are some of your insights into your research? Like, what did you what did you discover? What were some of the fascinating facts, you know, other than the fact that they've got eight legs and can do multitasking? Well, I think, you know, the initial inspiration for Marcellus of learning how, um, you know, the, sort of the, the shenanigans, for lack of a better word, <laughs> that, that these animals get up to when they're put in captivity really did inform a lot of Marcellus's movements in the story. Um, I did very carefully research to to make sure that everything he was doing on a physical level was possible. And I think that's where a lot of the joy and wonder that I uh, hear from readers comes from. They'll say to me, oh, there's no way an octopus could fit through something that size. And I'll say, no, go, go look it up, go Google it. You'll find a bunch of videos. They actually can. Um, so I did a lot of online research initially. I have a little bit of a a problem when I'm drafting that I'm very easily distractible, uh, especially when the topic of the research is something as fun as a cephalopod <laughs> or any other kind of marine life. So when I was drafting, I kind of had to make it like a five minute rule for myself that if I needed, you know, I want Marcellus to be, you know, holding a pencil. Uh, he didn't end up doing that in the book. Turns out that wouldn't, that didn't really work, but you know, something like that, I would let myself five minutes on the internet looking this up and trying to uh, figure it out. And then I would leave myself a placeholder and kind of move on. Otherwise you just do, you go down so many fun <laughs> little trails of, of learning with these creatures. Um, and then on the revision was really when I got into the weeds of, okay, I need to figure out, um, you know, every, every movement that he's making needs to feel real. You know, everything that's going on in his head 
that's where I put my fiction writer hat on and took the artistic liberty of giving him these voices and the ability to read and and all of that. But, you know, his physical movements, I really did try to to make them feel real. And I am very lucky. One of my online writing groups had a woman in it who had worked in marine biology. So I had her read through it and she set me straight on a few things. Uh, she put me in touch with some folks that she had worked with who um, actually work in octopus rescue up in Alaska. And uh, they were very helpful and patient in answering my very, what I'm sure seemed like very weird questions that I was sending them. In addition to learning about the octopuses or the octopus. Or the octopi. <laughs> another possible way to say it, but how you really explore your themes of grief and connection. And I was just wondering how you got to that piece with the relationship with Tova and Marcellus and how that became central to your story. Well, I think from the beginning, from, from the beginning of Marcellus's existence, and, and truly from the very first words that I wrote of him, it's the very first words that I wrote in his point of view are, are pretty faithful to what ended up being the first page of the book. Um, you know, this is a book about a creature who's at the end of its life. Uh, I kind of felt like there was no way this wasn't going to be a book about grief in some way. Um, and about how, you know, learning to, to seize what you have left, even if it's only a short time that you do have left. Um, my human characters are, you know, in a little bit better a position. Uh, Tova is, is the widow who works in the aquarium, who becomes friends with Marcellus. She has a little bit more time left than she does. She's, I like to say she's kind of at a, a three quarter life crisis. Um, mm -hmm. she's in her seventies. Um, but yeah, she has had a lot of loss in her life and, uh, has not been very productive at, um, dealing with those emotions. And a lot of this comes from my family. I grew up in a, a Scandinavian family, a Swedish family. Um, my grandmother was the inspiration for the character of Tova. And I feel like I took a lot of what I sometimes think of, you know, we're stoic to a fault. You know, you kind of keep everything bottled up inside and you put your head down and you do the work and, that's what Tova in the book has been doing for decades. And it finally comes to a head and she needs to learn how to sort of allow herself to be, be vulnerable and allow people to help her. And, you know, the very first, I almost said person, the very first creature <laughs> that she feels comfortable doing that to is, is Marcellus. And it sort of comes about from this you know, almost almost magical experience she has when he like touches her and kind of tastes her. And they have that physical contact that is unlike anything that she's ever really experienced. And I think brings about some of that vulnerability in her. So it's it's hard to get a first novel in terms of agentry and a publisher, especially something that's fresh and unique like your book is. Um, at the same time, my octopus teacher came out around that time. So that must have helped to sort of popularize the idea of octopi as central characters in relationships. Oh, absolutely. I, I have a story about my octopus teacher. Uh, it's a, I love my, it's fantastic. Um, I recommend it to everyone, especially if they have read my book and haven't seen it. I'm like, oh, you're going to love this. You're in for a treat. I had just finished writing my, uh, I finished my draft of Remarkably Bart Creatures and I was getting ready to query it to agents. This was like late summer of 2020. And so I was already feeling kind of like 
just the kind of vulnerable and, you know, you're about to send your work out into the world and it's, you know, scary and you're stealing yourself for rejection. And I remember my kids were watching Netflix in the other room because they watched so much Netflix during the pandemic. And the trailer from an octopus teacher came on. And I remember just hearing, you know, those words of, oh, this is a friendship between a human and an octopus. And it's, you know, heartwarming and touching. And I had this moment that I'm not proud of where my heart kind of broke because I was like, oh, someone beat me to it. I feel like all of us writers and artists have this deep-seated fear that someone else in the world is doing the same thing as you and they're going to do it better and beat you to the market with it. And so, you know, the irrational part of my brain had this moment of thinking that's what had happened and was absolutely crushed. And then, of course, I went and watched it. And as as my octopus teacher became, you know, kind of blew up, it became really popular over the next couple of months, like rightfully so, I realized that I had just stumbled into just the luckiest thing that I could possibly hope to stumble into in terms of timing. Because right as my manuscript was going and ending on landing on agents' desks was when my octopus teacher was just, you know, kind of at the height of its cultural moment that it had uh, back in 2020 and 2021. So um, yeah, octopuses are, are having a moment, definitely. <laughs> you know, no, o- got... o- octopus is like the new shark, you know, people are going to be doing documentaries and novels about octopuses for a long time. I think part of it is, um, you know, people sort of came to realize that, you um, that cetaceans, that whales and dolphins, they were mammals, they had big brains, they were like us, and you could sort of discern their intelligence. And I think this idea that there's intelligence and empathy across many species kind of is is one of the things maybe driving your octopus moment. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's amazing that, you know, I I didn't really want to write a book about is it right to keep animals in captivity or not? Because that is, that's a huge question that I don't think anyone has the definitive answer to. But I did want to kind of make people think about that. And I think the fact that octopuses are have been so popular has driven some small changes that are really good. You know, I know that um, a lot of aquariums, including the Seattle Aquarium a few years ago, instead of keeping octopuses in captivity for their whole lifetime, like Marcellus, you know, they keep them temporarily. And then they let them go. Have you taken your ideas or your, you know, your delight with octopuses and have like moved that into any kind of activism in your world or in your family's world? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have, you know, just the the financial windfall of this book. I definitely um, it's, it's important to me to divert a lot of that to, you know, particularly getting plastics out of the ocean. Um, you know, I, I donate to the um, some of the organizations that rescue octopuses and, you know, rehabilitate them. Um, You know, they are not as endangered as a lot of other species are. But I, one of the things that has been most joyful to me in this whole process is just seeing, um, I sort of think of them as like little nudges. You know, again, you take someone who um, maybe has, you know, never, never been to the ocean or wouldn't have really any reason to have a connection to it and care about it. Um, And, you know, this book can be just a little nudge in the direction of, oh, maybe I should care about that a little bit more. I was at an event in Texas and it was actually really cool. The Dallas Zoo brought a couple of their penguins to the event just to, 
I think to keep people entertained in the signing line because <laughs> the signing <laughs> line was long, but then also just, you know, to be a, uh, be able to put their uh, message out there, you know, their kind of conser- conservation message out there and, and build some awareness. But it was fascinating. He pulled the room. This was a room of probably about 300 people. He said, before reading Remarkably Bright Creatures, how many of you knew anything about giant, about any octopuses? And like, you know, a handful of hands go up. And then uh, after reading this book, how many of you went and Googled octopuses and and learned something and cared a little bit more? And like every hand in the room went up. Oh, and, that makes me feel so good to hear uh, that. It's so cool. I mean, a lot of people who would otherwise have no pathway to come to learn about something like this now have this pathway. And, you know, maybe it doesn't turn them into, you know, doing activism every day of their life or spending their life savings on trying to save the oceans. But, you know, it helps, I hope, at least a little bit. It, yeah. It's like so much of uh, the world, even when they think of the environment, don't think of the other 71% of the planet that's salt water. What's your actual writing habits? Like, I'm going to do my next book on the kelp forests and go out, you research, you get in the field. And I like to write between like 8 p.m. and 2 in the mornings, my most productive. Some people are morning writers. Some people need total quiet. Others can write with the kids in the background. How do you write? Oh, I'm I'm with you on the 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, I'm I'm not really a morning person. I can I can like edit in the morning, but it's, I, ha- I have a hard time being generative in the morning. Um, and I, my most productive hours are usually after everyone everyone in the house is in bed. And I think for me, part of that is just knowing that I don't have an end point. I mean, sunrise, I guess. <laughs> and I, and, that, and that, I have seen the sunrise a few times, but, you know, it's hard for me to, you know, I've got young kids like, okay, I've got a couple hours before they get picked up from school. Like, what if I really get in the groove? Like, I'm not going to want to stop. And so I think I hold back because I know that I'm, you know, I, I ha- I'm on a leash basically. Uh, so I find my best writing is always in those middle of the night hours when it just feels like time kind of doesn't exist outside of my little glowing laptop orb that I'm in. <laughs> um, but, you know, realistically speaking, like I can't stay up all night every night because I have a functioning family and, and life outside of writing. So, you know, I do also try to squeeze it in in the cracks in between other obligations. And, you know, that that works, too. What I like about your book, well, many things, but I, I, you know, you're dealing with grief, you're dealing with creatures, but you're also incorporating humor. And I guess I'm wondering if that humor element is going to be continued in your future projects. Absolutely. I <laughs> have a hard time when a book doesn't make me laugh at least once. Mm-hmm. I feel like any, even, no matter how serious you're trying to be about something, uh, you got to have a little bit of levity. So I think that I always will write that way. But, you know, I also, I, I like tackling more serious issues too. Those are, those are my favorite books to read, you know, the sort of laugh and cry. So that's probably where I'll stay as a writer. I think it's really hard to write convincingly and write engagingly if you're not sort of in love with your subject. So, you know, I think for for writers who, whether they're fiction writers or nonfiction writers, you know, just find the thing that you can't forget about at night, you know, and go to sleep. Find the thing that's keeping you up that, you know, that you feel almost uh, an insatiable 
interest in. You know, you could keep learning and you would never learn enough. I think those are the things that if it's if it's fascinating to you like that as the writer, that's going to come across and it's going to be fascinating to readers. That passion, that fun counts. You know, David and I have been working in the ocean environment for decades. And oftentimes we're asked, how do you stay optimistic? How do you keep going? And I think we all have hit onto something like you find the joy in your work and you 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 really appreciate your successes or the successes that the ocean is experiencing or like a rebirth or a population increase. So again, you're so right about finding the joy in what you do to, to keep going. Right. I always feel a little more optimistic when I'm just coming out of a body surfing session or after a spectacular <laughs> dive. Yeah. Um, where where do you find your joy? Is it coastal? Is it in the woods? Uh, you're you're off skiing right now. What do you do to uh, to just oh gosh find that pleasure center? You know, I I love the ocean, but it was it was strange to me to you know I I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and I was not a person who traveled a lot really until like after college. So to me, it was like you know you think of the water. I'm like the water is cold. The water is cold. dark. Like you don't go in there. You know. And then as an adult, having traveled so much more around um, oceans that are very different than that, you know, you go to Florida and it's like, oh, this water is not as dark and scary and you can go in it um, carefully. But, um, you know, for me, I think it comes back to I, I like things that are moody and, you know, um, Puget Sound, Salish Sea in Washington is just so moody. And I almost can't separate the woods from the water because they're they're together they're one and the it's same so they're all kind of part of this big moody package that you know always will be like my favorite place in the world even though i don't live there anymore i think a lot of people have been amazed by your book it's gotten popular through word of mouth it's it's a very traditional way that it's gotten out there i assume you were surprised and and delighted that uh, it happened that way oh i think you know, I was surprised. I think my publisher was a little bit surprised. Uh, you know, they 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 had a good marketing campaign for it, a great marketing campaign uh, when it came out back in 2022. Um, and we had a good summer that summer. You know, it was a good launch. It was a read with Jenna Today Show pick like that. And all of that was just incredible. But I don't think anyone anticipated what would happen sort of later in 2022 and into 2023 with this word of mouth thing. You know, it went from you know, it was on the New York Times list at, at the very beginning, and then it dropped off, um, you know, and then it came back on and it's been kind of on ever since, I think. And that is all word of mouth. And, um, and in some place, social media, you know, the, the Instagram people that share on Instagram and TikTok and, but you know, that's word of mouth too, really, in a way. So it's been very, a very organic uh, way for it to grow. And it's just been so much fun to watch. Um, a, a great surprise, I think, for all of us. Thank you so much, Shelley Van Pelt, the author of Remarkably Bright Creatures, for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. It was a joy and a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.